Support for Long Form this week comes from listening. If you've ever had to rip through a huge pile of academic papers, you know how painful it can be to spend all that time staring at a piece of paper. Listening makes it really simple to convert anything you have to read into spoken words that you can enjoy on the go. Uses AI to generate realistic voices that sound like actual human beings. Plus, it comes with a powerful set of tools that allows you to do stuff like skip over non-essential text, but also take notes with one click. Your life just got a lot easier. Normally, you'd get a two-week free trial, but listeners of Longform get a whole month free. Go to listening.com slash longform or use code longform at checkout. First thing in the morning, as soon as you wake up, the to-do list starts. Does the car need gas? Hopefully those leftovers are still good. Why did I get CC'd on Home mom? No. You can't escape the to-do list, but you can make the most of your me time with a relaxing shower using Method Hair Care products. Try Pure Peace Volumizing, Simply Nourish Moisturizing, or Daily Zen Shampoo and Conditioner for daily use. All formulated with long-lasting fragrances and are safe for color-treated hair. Reconnect with the best version of yourself. Visit methodproducts.com to unleash your inner shower. Welcome to the Long Form Podcast. I'm Aaron Lammer here with my co-hosts Evan Ratliff and Max Linsky. Hello. Hi, Aaron. Hey, Aaron. Good to see you. Thank you. Thank you. Good to see you both. Uh, we've got a great show for you this week. I hear you're going to um, explore the world of finance. I do. Sometimes your interest in finance. I I should say that uh, this episode was taped before the collapse of uh, portions of the American banking system. Uh, so that is not directly addressed, but some of the types of events uh, that have happened in America over the last couple of weeks are discussed in this interview, which is with Mary Childs. She is the co-host of Planet Money, and she uh, has a book out uh, called The Bond King, which is about Bill Gross and his PIMCO empire. We talked all about how she got into financial reporting, trying to make financial reporting work for non-financial audiences, and why she decided that this specific firm and this person uh, merited a book-length dive, which I actually found completely fascinating. Always love it when you delve into the world of finance. Wow. Okay. I, I guess I've been overdoing it on the finance here. Is that the vibe I'm getting from my co-host? No. The, no. The, Matt Levine, you've, there's been some great ones. Your own insecurity is on display. Both of us totally meet it. It's fun when you talk to people about money. Okay. I like to display my insecurity as much as possible in these introductions. Speaking of talking to people about money, we make the show in partnership with the fine people at Vox. Thanks very much to them. And now here's Aaron with Mary Childs. Hello, Mary Childs. Hi. You are the co-host of Planet Money. Yes. A podcast that I probably have been listening to intermittently for like, how long has Planet Money existed? We don't exactly know. It's a beautiful mystery. Um, we were kind of a spin out from This American Life in the financial crisis. So there's a little bit of debate about the exact first episode, but it was right in the depths of the crisis, I think. Okay, that's good grounding. For me, because at that point in time, I went to a discount gym 
podcast. I'm just just as a history lesson for the young people out there. Mm-hmm. I would load podcasts onto my Apple. I guess it was an iPod hardware device. You like had the list. circle, like the yes. click, 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 yes, click. Yes, nice. yes, yes. So that's that's where my relationship with Planet Money starts. With is with the click, 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 and it continues to this day. Although you know, I was thinking while I prepared for this interview how. At the time Planet Money started, it had almost no competition. Like there was almost no finance entertainment. Yeah. <laughs> and now there is a plethora of uh, finance entertainment. And that sort of changed the game a little bit. So how, like, how did you get into this? Did you always have ambitions to do audio reporting? No, I really, um, I just got into it by luck. I have been a print reporter my entire career before this, and it just so happened that there were openings on Planet Money sort of intermittently when I was like poking around myself and looking looking at different opportunities. And obviously, I love Planet Money so much. I've been a longtime listener as well. And there are a few places that are so fun. Like it's very unusual to find a place where you're not only able to make jokes, but encouraged and let your personality kind of come through and that kind of thing. You know, in print journalism, like I started out at Bloomberg News, which I loved so much, but like you don't say adjectives at Bloomberg. So so the ability to think so carefully about narrative structure and rate of release and word choice and things like that was, um, I think they appreciated my expertise and like the levity I bring to finance. I think they were like, okay, great, bring that here. And I was like, me? <laughs> okay. <laughs> So you felt like you had a confidence in the business reporting part of it. Were you confident in the on the mic parts? Like, how did you know that you could do the part that people are hearing, not the hardcore reporting part? I think this was one of those examples of ignorance being bliss because I arrived with so little knowledge of the like church of audio and was just like, okay, here's the mic. I talk into it. Let's go. And like my mic technique was awful and I was pee popping everywhere. And I had like a theater background, you know, as a, as a literal child. Ah. So all of a sudden it a little bit became relevant. People were like, why do you know how to do this? And I was like, what are you talking about? So that part was, um, I've obviously benefited from like great coaching on my team and my co-hosts and producers have been immensely helpful in kind of being like, I think you said the wrong and I think you meant and and I'm like, oh, that's a that's a distinction that you can make with your voice. So uh, a lot of on the job training. Yeah, there's I don't mean this in an insulting way to anyone. <laughs> I'm sure it's going to insult someone. But there's a whole school of how men talk who've come up under Ira Glass and they sound a lot like Ira Glass and they use a lot of the cadence and the rhythm of the fire glass. And not only do you have a different voice than Ira Glass, but it seems like you're speaking in a different natural way. Uh, it must be the theater training. That that's... It might. It's all my acapella. Don't worry. <laughs> I have tried to sing on Planet Money so many times and everyone's like, please stop. Don't do that. No. <laughs> um, but thank you. That's really, that's nice. And the Ira Glass thing is, um, you can hear it. You, It's so pernicious. And I do it too. We hear ourselves do it. And also the, this is NPR. Yeah. Oh, yeah. NPR voice is one. Uh, one of the mixing programs that I've used to mix podcasts before just has a setting called NPR voice. That's so good. But like when you're hearing someone report a story, there's a lot more personality mm-hmm. that comes through than in a print piece, not just in that you're um, not limited by adjectives, but like 
you're kind of hearing the person's attitude yes. toward the thing they're reporting on. When you're doing different kinds of stories, how do you think about like what you think about them? Ooh, wow. I love that. I think uh, that's a really hard question, actually. We try to bring, you know, you try to bring like a, an appropriate tone, right? If you're doing a heavy, serious story, you try to keep your composure and just treat everyone with dignity and respect and keep that focus. But for the most part, I feel like most of my stories are pretty lighthearted and or it's a dense something or other that, you know, other people might, for whatever reason, feel repelled or like it's boring and they don't want to focus on it. And I'm like, no, 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 my job is to convince you, come over this way. It's actually quite fun and delightful. And so retaining that levity can really be a tool and can can be kind of an access point. And like you're talking about transmitting emotional information through voice and especially in the pandemic, which has been, you know, the preponderance of my time at Planet Money, it's been kind of mission critical to bring people joy if possible. And so if we have a delightful story or can find delight in the story, I think that's really useful and helps people tune in next time. So this kind of idea that people are not naturally going to gravitate towards exotic financial instruments or the intricacies (laughs) of bond trading, say, um, Uh I think... It's inarguably true, but I also think that there's sort of another generation of financial reporters who I would consider you amongst who aren't just doing this as a job, but have a actual enthusiasm and passion for the things that they're writing about. Um, Like, where did your interest in business and finance come from and how has it sort of developed over the years that you've been doing this? I think my interest started, you know, I majored in business journalism in college. So that was, you know, it's it goes back a ways. And part of my motivation was I started in political reporting and I couldn't understand how it worked. It seemed to me like man has idea, might do thing was like a story. And I couldn't comprehend how I was supposed to fact check that. What happens if man is like, no, I didn't. Like everything about it didn't compute for me. And it was so key to access as well. Like I just couldn't catch my footing in there. And so then when I kind of turned my attention to business journalism or financial reporting, I was like, oh, there are charts, there are numbers. I can like go check what someone told me by looking at the stock market or this, you know, independent data provider or whatever. And that felt really reassuring to me that I could have my own footing and not just exclusively triangulate from sources, which can feel a little dangerous. That was part of it. And also the constant reinvention is really fun. Like there's always something new. They're going to invent a new swap tomorrow and you just get to go find out what that is. It's just this beautiful, fertile ground for engineering and creativity. And to some extent, I think the branding of it as boring is appealing to me because I'm like, oh, is it? Is is it boring? Like, let's find out. Like there's something of a challenge embedded in that where like, oh, you wouldn't want to play here. This is, this is too complicated. You're going to get bored. You're going to tune out. And I think that's a lie. I think that they're telling us that to make us go pay attention to other things so they can get all the money. (laughs) So as you try to tell people what's really going on, I'm interested in actually sort of two forms of metaphor. One, when you're talking to someone who works in this industry and you want to understand what they're doing, what are the things that you ask and what sorts of ways do you build an understanding of what they're doing? And then 
when you're trying to then recount that to a general audience, what kinds of metaphor storytelling, what are your go-tos to get that in? You know, especially like it's a pretty fast moving program. Like often you've got like two, three sentences to explain a concept. Oh yeah. Yeah. That is the big challenge. You know, I'm always ambitious when I start out. I'm like 20 minutes. That's so long. I'll be able to get all of the things in, in 20 minutes and 20 minutes is no time at all. And you can do maybe two ideas, usually one. I used to produce podcasts for clients and people would do like scripts for the intro. And I'd be like, the intro should be like one minute. And it would be like a full single space page. I was like, that's like (laughs) eight or nine minutes long easily. (laughs) (laughs) Like the intro to a podcast is like two or three sentences long. And that's, that takes like a minute. Like when all is said is done. Yeah. It's frustrating at times because I have to learn this basically every episode that no, no, not this time. Maybe you can do that idea next show. You have to do an entirely new 20 minute show that takes weeks to create. Um, How I get people to talk about what they do and how I get to understand it. I remember I started out at Bloomberg News covering the credit default swap market. Um, This is after the financial crisis, so it was kind of a wasteland. Some people were still there just trading CDS, just coming in every day and doing the same thing. And a lot of people had left. The industry was, you know, maligned in the financial crisis. And I kind of got to show up to this desolate wasteland and be like, hey, I don't have an opinion about whether what you do is moral or not. But like, what are you doing? And I have to write a daily column about it. So it's naturally interesting to me. And people were like, oh. Oh, you want to talk to me? And what I did that I can hardly imagine doing now, but I went into the Bloomberg terminal and I pulled up the people search function and I typed the word credit into the like search field. And that yielded, as you can imagine, haha, yield a bajillion different results. And I called each and every one of them. I spent the next few weeks calling anyone who had ever put credit in their profile and being like, hey, I, uh, I, you know, I'm a new reporter at Bloomberg News and I'm covering credit default swaps. And some of the people would be like, I trade treasuries. I don't know why you're talking to me. And I'm like, well, that's on you for putting credit in your profile. Whatever. <laughs> and, and that yielded maybe like four or five sources over time, some of whom ended up being the very best sources in the universe who had never spoken to another journalist because no one had ever called them because they're, you know, deep in the bowels of trading. They're just a guy. And that was super helpful. So again, like that took an incredible amount of like energy to pick up the phone and be like, hi, um, I'm and just go for it. But I'm so glad I, I had that energy and did do that because that was a great starting point of just I'm a blank slate. My column every day is a blank slate. So I think my opening question is usually I'm interested in the thing. Can you tell me about it? I think actually this is worth for the uh, cub business reporters listening. Walk me through like what that sort of entails to have a source where it's not a source for a specific story, but it's sort of an industry source for you. Yeah, there are varying degrees, right? And sometimes it's, you know, I remember there's this one source who I've kept up with and we would talk about what he was having for lunch. Like every day we would just discuss our lunches. And this was back when the internet was more fragmented and fractured and it was possible to find things on the internet that everyone hadn't already seen yet. So as a younger reporter with typically older sources, a major thing that I did for the high frequency sources that I talked to, meaning the ones that I talked to frequently, not that we're in high frequency trading, thankfully, I didn't have to talk to any of those. Just kidding. No offense, guys. But I would bring them like gifts and funny things on the internet and links, just whatever I had found that I had found entertaining. And, you know, they had less internet fluency and were just like, oh, look, a funny, cool thing. Thank you. You know, Ford CDS is interesting today because XYZ, whatever the thing was. 
So there's some degree of my own entertainment value being useful and then learning what each person likes and finds interesting. And it's kind of like a friendship, but with a pinch of sociopathy. For people listening at home, to sum that up, I believe it was cultivate sources by sending them memes. I don't think that works anymore, though, because it's like everyone saw the same tweet. Everyone's got memes. Everyone's got memes. So what are you going to do? I don't know. But, you know, I had a spreadsheet and I would check in with sources and be like, oh, you know, this guy just had a baby. And I would, you know, make a little note, check in about his baby, you know, however many months later. And that was really useful. People like hearing that you kind of care and that you're keeping up. Going back to the sort of explaining what people actually do part. So- Someone has spent like probably a fairly long time telling you about what they do and how important it is and how this is what trading these bond swaps is. These are these bond swaps. And I don't even know if bond swaps are a thing there. Actually, I just put two words together. That I liked it. I don't know of it, but why Theoretically, not? Theoretically, bond, these bond swaps. They're swapping bonds. People are swapping bonds. And you got like this like three sentence spot to explain bond swaps to the audience so you can move forward with the story that actually you want to tell. How do you think about that kind of compression? Oh, it's so hard. You have to be brutal. Like every piece of information is functionally a bridge to somewhere else. So if your destination is a greater understanding, like it's very rare that your destination is, I want you to know what a bond swap is. Usually understanding a bond swap is so that you can understand the greater forces at work here. It's usually the mechanism by which a thing is being expressed or power is being whatevered. So you have to just pick the details that are relevant and explain just enough so that those make sense. A big pet peeve of mine is when people hand wave away like, oh, this is really complicated and don't worry about it. It doesn't matter. Okay, you just wasted my time by telling me it doesn't matter. So just tell me what matters and we can move on. Like, I don't need to know what I don't need to know. You're supposed to make that curatorial decision for me. Thank you. So just being ruthless about what facts you actually have time to keep and what bridges you actually need to build. Okay, so you've got the facts you want to keep. You've thrown away the crap facts. You've got the ones you want to keep. When you have something you want to be in the story, like a Planet Money story alternates between host and someone being interviewed or source audio. How do you know what stuff you want to be in someone else's voice versus what stuff you want to be in your voice? Oh, this is a great one. So I think it's basically, if I can say it faster, I should say it. Hmm. If they have emotion or a reaction or just a delightful turn of phrase, like they were in the room and they're like, oh, wow, holy bananas. Like if there's some conveyance of real life, that's what you want. You want to keep the parts that animate the story, that give it kind of that human element and that alacrity. And then in the rest of it, if they're sitting there explaining what a bond swap is that they just invented – if I can do it faster and cleaner, then I should do it. If they're doing a really elegant, efficient job, then they get to do it. But it's, it is sort of like I want to save the moments for them that are going to be the most sparkling, best, most beautiful moments that they have in them. And I can do the rest. When you're interviewing someone and you're thinking about, OK, well, like, where am I going to like slot them into this story? I'm going to have them in this spot. Like, do you have an idea of what you want to get from a person while you're talking to them? Or do you just kind of let it flow and then cut it from what you have? Oh, wow. These are such good, like foundational audio, like existential questions that I'm grappling with too. Like this is a really big question that I talk to myself about a lot. To what extent do I script a question versus do I just let the convert? Like, I don't know, because there are absolutely things that you need to hit. And 
that you need to get out of the interview. And so I've had experiences where, you know, we'll be interviewing a person I know socially or that I've known for so long and it's super stilted and weird because I'm like, and then what happened on September 12th? Like, it's just weird because I need to get what I need to get. But the stilted questions, if I have the time and luxury to do a long interview, I will let them run and just have an actual conversation and then kind of go back and see, okay, what else do I need from this person? Did I miss anything? Because most of the moments... I want to run a little analysis on the tape that I've used in my career so far, because I have a sense that my best moments that I've gotten in tape are just letting the conversation flow, are letting people just be themselves and have something spontaneous happen and do a weird thing. I'm not sure, though. I'll have to come back to you with the actual answer. That's my impression from interviewing however many hundred people on this show. Like, I rarely ask the questions (laughs) I've written down. Mostly it's kind of like, a series of forking paths yes. and the like best moments are just somewhere deep in that forking path. But I have a one hour plus canvas. And for many of these people, you only have these like tiny, tiny little canvases. So I, I would imagine that there's like a, Ooh, could you say that again, except not the middle part and maybe talk faster? Yeah, absolutely. That's a thing. And some hosts are more like brutal about it than others. That was something that was shocking to me when I joined Planet Money, because listening to some of the really expert hosts just be like, what you just said was boring. I need you to say the part about this again. Mm. And the people cooperate, but I can't imagine saying that to someone and just watching the kind of deafness with which they hit like I am not there yet for sure I think I can be a strong interview and I was told by an editor that I'm pushy in a good way which I love thank you very much Um, but strengthening that muscle being pushy in a good way and guiding the conversation you know on a fast turnaround show that you're doing in three days um, that's on the news you need to do that scripted version where you're like no sorry I would love to chat but like tell me the thing that I need to know. And if you have more time and that luxury of letting the conversation unfold, that's my general preference. But learning to guide really strongly is a, a real skill. So you uh, you put your first book out recently, recently-ish. It's called The Bond King. It's about Bill Gross, who uh, is probably the most famous person in Bond history <laughs> for any Bond history followers here. He is the uh, longtime uh, head of PIMCO. First of all, like, what made you want to spend this long with this one guy and this one company? When you put it that way, it does sound counterindicated. But I think it was a love of the subject matter. I truly, you know, of the actual market. They, PIMCO and Bill, basically established active bond trading. You know, Bill is called the Bond King, hence the title, and has been credited with really creating the secondary bond market, the active bond trading market. And that's because it just didn't exist before them and before Bill and his peers across the country. And I think the... My mission was similar to that of Planet Money in that I knew this was an important thing, this this world of bonds, PIMCO itself, their role in the financial crisis, their role in our society. All of these things are crucially important, but very few people are going to sit down and go down like a wiki hole about PIMCO and bonds. And I felt like this story is bonkers enough to be an entertaining ride where you get off at the end of the ride like, whoa, what just happened? But you now know a lot more about the bond market than you did when you got on. And I hoped that that was true for even bond market practitioners and lay people. It was supposed to kind of um, thread that needle and give everybody a little something interesting. And I think to some extent, you know, a lot of um, a lot of old school bond people have said that they learned things, which made me so happy. Um, But 
it seemed like this book should already exist. And the fact that it didn't, I was like, all right, fine, I'll just do it. The story is not told in linear order. Like there will be a point where we're hearing about the financial crisis and then you're hearing about something that Bill Gross did in 1985. Tell me about that decision and also how you managed the reader's sort of expectations around that throughout the book. Because I now, now having read the whole book, I understand why you did that. But I was like, oh, wow, this is going to be kind of a high wire act if we're like threading <laughs> our way through this story. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of jumping. Not everyone loved it. I think, well, I tried to write it chronologically at first. And I also tried to write it chronologically starting in Thomas Paine issuing a pamphlet about the need for <laughs> pen. Like it was not ideal. I And I was like, and then we invented a formal pension and this, it just was not my best. This is work. like how every Bitcoin like book starts with on the Island of Yap, concrete discs <laughs> were cut. Yes. Yeah. Literally that it's, yeah, yeah it, I went too far. And Thankfully, that draft is in the trash. But eventually, I realized I needed to start. And by I, I mean my agent, an editor or two, like like (laughs) a cohort of helpful, curatorially talented people. Basically, it was just like the story starts in 07. PIMCO is about to be, PIMCO's on the precipice of this enormous thing of being at the center of this discovery about the housing market. And I was thinking, you know, when I was reshaping it from the very boring, very textbook chronological version, what's the most cinematic moment I have in my pocket? And I think to me, that was the moment where Dan Iveson is in a car looking at houses outside of Boston to get a feel for the mortgage market in, you know, the pre-financial crisis days. And there's a lot wrapped up in this moment. The power dynamics within PIMCO are wrapped up in it. The kind of relationship between Bill Gross and his, uh, all the people that are junior to him, all of this and their economic outlook and the way that they approach the world, all of the things are wrapped up in that. And it's conveyed in a thing like you've been in a car, right? Like, you know what this feels like. So there's, it felt accessible and like you could put a camera in there. And then I just shaped it from there. So anytime I felt like there was, if I tripped on a thing in my narrative that was, oh, actually I need to have already explained this to you or hey, by the way, this is what a bond is and how it works. It's the same as at Planet Money. It's I'm handing you the tool so that you can understand what's about to happen. You don't need anything more than what I'm giving you. We can do more later. And you should be able to proceed fully equipped and able to intake the next thing and understand why it matters and why it's extremely hilarious. Support for Long Form This Week comes from listening. If you find yourself behind the eight ball needing to read a bunch of academic papers or journals or any kind of dense reading material, you might make your life a lot easier by checking out listening. It takes anything, articles, books, PDFs, and turns the text into spoken word that you can absorb no matter what you're doing. The app has a lifelike AI voices complete with emotion and intonation that creates a realistic and pleasant listening experience. So I had to go into the city for some meetings. I needed to review some PDFs, threw them in there, listened to them on the way. It was both pleasant and I kind of forgot that I wasn't like listening to a professionally done audiobook or something. Like very quickly, 
The voices sounded totally natural and human to me. This listening app might just transform how you consume reading material and you can give it a shot yourself risk-free. Now, normally you get a two-week free trial, but listeners of Longform get a whole month free. Go to listening.com slash longform or use the code longform at checkout listening. Your life just got a lot easier. There are a million bad ways to start your morning off. The no coffee traffic jam, the soggy morning jog, the why is the dog taking so long? Just go already walk. But you can unleash your ideal day with a perfect shower using Method hair care products. Designed with high quality ingredients, Method's new range of shampoos and conditioners will give your hair undeniable softness and shine. And hey, if you're a night shower kind of person, that's great too. Try pure peace infused with peony, rose water, and quinoa protein. Or Simply Nourish, crafted with coconut, rice milk, and shea butter. Or Daily Zen, made with cucumber, seaweed, and green tea. Reconnect with the best version of yourself. Visit methodproducts.com to unleash your inner shower. Shop methodproducts.com. ask like business reporters I have on the show kind of the same question, which is like, when you're telling a business story, how much do you count the personalities and personal life of the people in it versus the larger business story? Like, do you learn something about PIMCO by learning about like Bill Gross's golfing habits, I would actually argue you kind of do, but I wouldn't have known that until after I read the book. So how going into the book, how did you think about that? Well, I would not have put it this way, but uh, in the intervening years since I finished the book, I read a book called American Bonds that I'm obsessed with. And it's a, by a sociologist. And she said, she says in the book that pools of debt are moral worlds. Like we bound debt and we bound groups of people and we delineate who's in and who's out. So, okay, it's a collateralized debt obligation, but it's a way to make a club. It's a way to say what we prioritize, who gets paid and who doesn't, who's ahead of whom. And it's a way to express our values. And I had never thought about it in those terms. And being able to think of it in that way, I think that knit together the two worlds, right? Where it's like, yes, we're all people. And I try not to pry into people's personal lives. And I try not to, you know, hurt anyone in the process of my reporting and, and my work. And then on the flip side, you do need to understand people because that's why they act the way they do. And so the, you know, Bill Gross's golfing is relevant because it's another manifestation. It's a, a way that he expresses who he is and how competitive he is and his own values. And that comes to bear throughout PIMCO, throughout the bond market. And being judicious about what you include and what you don't a lot of times I just, I include as much as is tolerable. <laughs> you know, you, you can feel it when you're writing or, you know, at this point, I think I can feel it where it's like, all right, I'm running out of the reader's patience. I'm running out of the listener's patience. If I keep going down this road, I only have so much time before I need to move on to something, you know, a little jazzy or at least just change up the pace or, or change up what we're focused on. If I like went on and on about Bill Gross's golfing habits, that's a different book. And I think I would lose a lot of the Bond people and maybe most people. Well, in the book, um, do you mind if I spoil? Is it okay if I spoil it? Do a spoiler. Yeah. You can turn the if you're, spoiler alert. If you yeah. don't know how the Pimco story ends, this is this Boy, is where are you, you should in turn for some fun. Off. Yeah. <laughs> um, you hear all about this guy's personality, which I think 
difficult would be the best single word to describe it. And in the first part of the book, you go, oh, this is just a story about like a difficult guy. Like I'm sure lots of CEOs are difficult, whatever. And then there's a very specific moment in the book where I thought his downfall was going to be market related, but basically his co-CEO is like, fuck you. I'm fucking out of here. Like Mohammed, uh, L uh, was, uh, L Arian. Mohammed L Arian. Yeah. L Arian is like, no, no, it's not a business thing. My problem is with you, bro. And it changes like that personality conflict. Well, a it, like cost people like hundreds of millions of dollars probably, but you know, no matter how you spun it, it was basically about, two guys who couldn't get along, you know? Um, and basically that's the beginning of the end of like one of the largest American financial companies. It's not because of like a bad beat at the table. It's because of personality. So how, how did you deal with people's sort of expectation of what the story would be? I say this to someone who had no idea what the PIMCO story was until I read the book. I think what I wanted to do the strategic choice that I made was actually to kind of paint Bill as the caricature that he had been in the press in some ways and had been at PIMCO in some ways. So this hard charging, intense kind of domineering, you know, perfectionist bit of a jerk. Um, I kind of wanted to front load that. And then I wanted to soften him to let you in and, and hear why he's like this, or maybe he's not entirely like this, but also like, I'm not completely convinced that every every CEO or every major investor, et cetera, necessarily is this interesting. Um, I think that some of them are boring. And I say that having spoken to so many people, there are interesting ones, but Bill is uniquely reflective and open about these things and has been for decades. So when I started this project, I had so many years of him being on TV, of him writing these monthly investment outlooks that start with really personal anecdotes. And so even if he never spoke to me for the book, I would have something to work with. And you're right, the the humanity of the downfall is just so painful. I feel like the emotional resonance in the back half of the book, like we've all had petty work spats. We've all gotten into a ridiculous argument over something extremely minute that really we should back out of this conversation and leave and we're, we're still in it. And rarely are the stakes so high in those conversations and those <laughs> intractable negotiations. But, but in this case, it, it had enormous consequences. So I really liked it for that reason that he's reflective, but also, like you're saying, this personality mismatch was so expensive and so consequential and also so telling about the consequences and stakes of the system that we've built. Yeah, those investment outlooks are like such a blessing because they're written in his voice and they're contemporaneous. I know. And the writing style is they're beautiful. kind of insane. Like the tone that they're the most like was early in email when someone in your family would send out like a like 3000 word email that like had lots of like jokes in it and you're like oh i've never heard you write before it's a little <laughs> disturbing but now i feel like i know you a little better like maybe too well yeah, yeah. like I, yeah. it's possible i didn't need to know this much yeah bill he found that that helped his notoriety like people really loved really responded to these notes people outside of finance but really like retail investors and investment managers you know mutual fund people everybody loved this. And the more personal he was, the better the response was. So we figured out over time that this was a great marketing strategy, but it was absolute gold for me. I just kind of memorized some of them, which is really embarrassing. And hopefully at this point it's faded from my mind, but 
they're written in this intense tone. This at times, you know, some of them are I was like, I need to quote this whole thing. Like, how do I copy paste? Like, is that I need to call Bill and Pimco and get permissions because it's just so exactly what I need to say at this moment. Like, I can't beat him at this. So it was um, it was a gift. And also, you know, I, his voice is so strong. And there are times where I try to embody him. And it's funny to me now because I can't tell how much readers can tell when I'm moving in and out of his voice and his mind. So I don't know. I'm kind of curious how that transmits. So you're the first person who's written a book on this topic, as far as I know. Is that correct? And Well, Michael Lewis, you could argue, you know, Bonds, but that was mortgage bonds. Oh, yeah. But not about – no one's written a book about PIMCO specifically. Like a history I should of shout out Tim Middleton, but yes, post-crisis. There, there was like a 2003, but it was a very different book. Very um, different book. Okay. So, yeah, like the last 20 years, no one's written a book about it. When you can't use someone else's like research to bolster your own research, how do you start digging in – to this story like who who is your entry point for like everything that ever happened at pimco and also are these people happy that someone's writing a book about this or not no okay no one is happy that i wrote this book pretty much no one i'm trying to think of one person and i really can't um most people it was pulling teeth okay and i would be like hey me again so sorry um I heard this thing, this thing, this thing, and they'd be like, ugh, this was 25 years ago. Why are you doing this to me? Some people thought they would get paid to talk to me. That's a common misconception kind of broadly. Um, I like the uncharted territory stuff. It's fun. You're you're really – it's a little bit – you know, you're an explorer. You're, you're actually finding things out and, and starting from scratch. And I don't know. Sometimes that original – like if you're leaning on someone else's reporting, you kind of got to re-report it anyway. There's this longstanding legend about which hotel or sorry, motel Bill Gross stayed in in Vegas in what was it, 66 when he did his gambling thing. And forgive me if I got the date wrong. I'm starting to get dates wrong from the book, which is beautiful and sacred to me. But um, (laughs) it's really a good sign of my mental health. But for many years, it was quoted as this one thing. And I for some reason got stuck on this fact and I couldn't find that this motel ever existed. And eventually I'm like, Bill, I think it was this one. You know, it has the neon sign that you describe. It has this, it has that, but it doesn't, it's not called what everyone was calling it. And he was like, oh yeah, that was it. And it's just, that was a satisfying moment, but also scary because you don't know anything. Nobody knows anything. Like maybe somebody wrote it down, but it still could very well be wrong. So yeah, you just talk to as many people as possible is the answer. If they're alive, call them. Okay, so the fact that you're showing Bill Gross photos of a motel in Las Vegas suggests that you're fairly comfortable with him and and we're using him as a source. Tell me about that like central relationship and how how do you handle your main character source compared to a guy who worked 25 years ago at Pimco? Yeah, this is such a central thing to to writing any kind of book like this where I had to he's a unique person, right? He's he has a very good understanding of how the press works. He understands what my role is, he understands what his role is. So to some extent that was a huge advantage for me because I didn't have to train him how to work with me. I didn't have to explain everything every time. He just understood. Now that being said, he is as you read in the pages of my book, somewhat volatile. And, you know, his desire to interact with me fluctuated greatly. So some days he was emailing me and some days he was just totally icing me. And it depended on 
how his fund was doing, how his personal life was going, how he perceived the book, a thousand different factors, some of which I could not, you know, I have no way to diagnose. So he's not at all the kind of source where I would be like, hey, here's a GIF. Here's a meme of a cat doing a thing. That is absolutely not how I worked with him. But the things that I think opened the door most for him to talk to me and, and trust me as a journalist were I understood the bond market enough to speak with him about it and ask him informed questions about trades he was doing. And I think that that went a really long way because he gets, this is what he loves. You know, he actually is passionate about this world and it's kind of hard to find people that are really passionate about it sometimes. And this can feel kind of isolating. And especially when you've been doing this for so long and you've gone through a bajillion journalists and you can barely remember their names because it's been however many decades of, yeah, no, I did that trade. I think boons are undervalued here, blah, blah, blah. I was like, hey, Bill, you put on a, a this trade. Tell me about it. And he's like, oh, you know what that is? And I think that that was a shortcut for me. That kind of like accelerated our relationship a little. And I also benefited from the immense work of journalists that came before me because I arrived on the scene after. Yet again, you know, there was this explosion when Muhammad Alarian left the firm in January 2014. I arrived on the beat in April and I was like, hey, guys, what's going on? How you doing? And that really, I think, helped. So everyone kind of tried to use me to get their version out, I think. So the fact that you were talking to someone who might have a negative impression of Bill Gross in some ways is an incentive for him to participate so that it's not just a bunch of the people who have critical things to say about him in the book. Yes. And I should note, like, I'm not talking just about 2014. Like, certainly people had access to Grind then. But I think Bill's motivation to talk to me was very much she's writing this book. I can be in it or not. If I'm not in it, everyone's just going to talk shit about me and that's going to be the book. So <laughs> it was pretty clear cut, I think, for him. And he never told me that calculus, but I mean, it's pretty obvious. So it, it was definitely in his interest. And again, he understands media and he knows that the more human he is to me, the more human he'll be in the book. Yeah, I think the most striking thing in the book to me, or not the thing that surprised me the most was the degree to which someone in his position is sort of lobbying both his clients, his partners, the government and the public through appearing on TV. It's I guess where finance gets the closest to politics, where you start to shape reality by how you make other people think the reality is that kind of like echo chamber is almost difficult to report in because like, how did you know sort of what was his real feelings versus like a fake feeling that he was trying to manipulate the market and the government with? I think triangulation, first of all, talking to as many people as possible. And, and if he turned around and told someone else, you know, I'm lying through my teeth, then that's useful. That exact scenario didn't happen. But I start the book with this anecdote about a time where I had made a mistake in a story and Bill Gross corrected me on air. And then I tried to correct my story to reflect his correction. And I couldn't get those numbers. And I asked him, what am I doing wrong here? And he was like, you got to say your numbers. I got to say mine. And to me, that illustrates that he's very weirdly honest about this stuff. And I think you're right in saying, you know, I too had this impression that, oh, these people go on TV all the time and it's this like goofy, silly thing they do to maintain their brand or whatever. But it is consequential. It is a big deal. And a lot of times I was shocked at the number of times that TV appearances showed up as kind of turning points in the book or major plot points where everyone on the trade floor is watching with their jaw on the floor being like, what is going on on Bloomberg television right this minute? And 
I guess I underestimate our job to some degree where I'm like, oh, I thought that was just, you know, they're just chatting and saying what they think the value of Buns is here. But it's <sighs> discerning his motivations is impossible, actually, because, I mean, who among us truly knows how we are motivated anyway? So I can only go off what he says and how he acted and trying to present those as honestly and clearly as possible. Like, this is what I have. And if I tried to project motivation or intent, that's when I start opening myself up to lawsuits, too. So, yeah, I mean, it's a like unknowable question in a way when someone says, well, I'm talking my book. There's this concept of talking your book, right? Which is I'm saying things that would be to the benefit of my company and my positions. Right. But it is also possible for someone's talking their own book to also reflect their own true beliefs about what was best for the American financial system. Like in some ways, the book they're talking often becomes sort of indistinguishable from what they think is the best. Right. Because they invested in those things because they think it's the best. Right. The overlap is so enormous that, you know, at times, yeah, like talking your book is just your book is your book because it's what you believe. Yeah. It, like it has similarities to like sports fandom in that way where you just are like, I can't imagine not liking this team. They're like, why do you like this team? It's like, because I root for this team. I like they're the it. best. Yeah. They're I like, like the team. I'm not lying to you. I really think they're the best. Yeah. Um. Okay, so now that this book is done and you're like overriding some of the RAM in your own brain, um, what excites you about stories going forward? I mean, I said at the beginning of the show that like there are more and more outlets that treat finance in a more like entertaining and less clinical manner. It's a more crowded field. How do you find stories and what kind of stories excite you? I think the career long answer is I love aberrations. I love when things go wrong. Usually, you know, you get a high stress situation, you get all of the manifestations of personality, you know, we're our most selves, if not our best selves at those times. And I like the ones that kind of embed or have embedded in them all of those, you know, conduits of power and that reveal the greater system. And I'm just literally doing the planet money pitch basically is because that's that's just what we do. Um, but it is this idea that once you dive into this exact inflection point, you can see the whole thing. But the thing that I look for is just big whoopses, big, big <laughs> mistakes, not simple ones. Like Bill Huang had this like bad trade and it like went sideways. What was that last year? And everyone was reporting on it. And I was kind of like, wait, he just like did bad trades. That was it. That's the story. His trades were bad. I truly have no no further questions on that. So it has to have some sort of complex financial engineering that makes it fun or exciting or like a second derivative or a trigger in some way. There has to, for me, I feel like I like when there's some sort of knock-on effect or it just takes you somewhere. Is there a specific kind of story that works well for audio? It's hard to do a finance audio story well, I think. Like narrative, I've done probably two I think I've done one about J. Crew and one about bankworms when Citigroup accidentally sent $900 million to a bunch of hedge funds that exactly wanted that $900 million. But those were lucky. Like those were such gnarly, big stories that were unique and impossible to replicate. So the way to find good audio in finance is just with the people. That's really all I found so far. You know, the genius of Planet Money is when you can go to the Fed and say, hey, how do you make a money? 
and then they push a button and do it and you hear the button be pushed. Like that's delightful. That's exciting. And it's really hard to find those moments. So I don't know. I mean, I'm, I'm working on it. If you have good ideas, let me know. Well, it's interesting with the DNA of um, this American life. A lot of this American life stories start with, here's some incredible audio. Here's this diary this person was keeping when they were a kid or something. And those kind of stories just don't really happen in fact like I can't think of a single finance story that had like founder verite audio components when you're lacking that do you have techniques for sort of bringing that feeling of being there it becomes difficult I sometimes find to draw excitement to narratives where people are all sitting at computers like and that's going to be the next 100 years yeah the cinematic version is typing it's rough I agree I think you have to find people with that are in this the middle of the action who are literally at that inflection point, at the center of whatever is happening, and have them relive it with all the joy and terror that they can remember. And that part's not that hard. You know, that's like the delight of audio too, is you can there are ways to get people back into themselves and you can really typically get people to to remember. And, you know, the body keeps the score, they'll they'll tell you. And then we talk a lot about good talkers, and that means people that can convey emotion and inflect their voice in interesting ways and talk with a cadence or use funny phrases or, you know, any of these things that make people sound alive and sound interesting and make people want to listen further. Can you turn a non-good talker into a good talker, or is it just in the first five seconds you can tell who's going to be a good talker and who's not? It so depends. Like, I remember there was this one call that Jacob Goldstein and I did, and I thought it was incredible. I thought it was the best interview of all time. This guy was saying absolutely incredible things about the mortgage market. I get off the phone. I was like, Jacob, that absolutely ruled. Like, oh, my God. Like, what are we gonna? And he was like, that we can't use any of that. And I was like, what do you mean? And it just it wasn't relevant to our story. It turned out the guy was talking in jargon that I found like was totally lucid to me, but would have required 20 minutes of explanation just to get you to the tape, which obviously we don't have time for. And it just, he was right. It didn't work. So I think you can, but it's so hard. You have to meet them there, basically. Like they're in that case, they're not coming to you. They're not just delivering on a silver platter, this gorgeous cut of tape with their raw emotion and a, a amazing turn of phrase that no one's ever heard before. You have to go to them and create the world around them and build a structure that, that allows them to shine. Mary, thank you so much for this interview. I really appreciate it. Thank you. This was so fun. That was the Long Form Podcast. Thanks very much to Mary Childs. Thanks to my co-hosts, Max Linsky and Evan Ratliff. Thanks to Susan Peterson, who edited this episode and also did the show notes. Thanks to everyone at Vox Media. We'll be back with another show next week. Support for Long Form this week came from Listening. Listening makes it easy to convert written text to pleasant audio tracks that you can take in no matter what you're doing. It offers AI voices that manage to express emotion and correctly pronounce complicated technical terms, all while sounding like actual human beings, not robots. 
The listening app might just transform how you consume reading material, and you can give it a shot for yourself risk-free. Normally, you get a two-week free trial, but listeners of Longform get a whole month free. Go to listening.com slash longform or use code longform at checkout. Listening. Your life just got a lot easier.